Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to be walking you through the basic structure and tenets of critical social theory, which is a long time developing ideology or movement, um, primarily in academia, but it has spilled recently onto the scene in various forms. We see kind of the the popular or even degraded forms of it in things like cancel culture, so-called wokeness, uh, the anti-racism of the Kendi and D'Angelo type, and um, just a, a sudden powerful ethical impulse to um, destroy or demolish or severely criticize everything of the past that does not stand up to a standard held today, which attacks everything from Abraham Lincoln to Dr. Seuss. So uh, although this is kind of a, a viralized and mob mentality version that we see, it actually has quite deep roots in philosophy. And so what we want to do is walk you through where it comes from, why it got to where it is today. Uh, there are many different facets to this story, and it's uh, helpful to know all the different parts of them in order to see what exactly the critique of value there is that lies in this movement, but also where there are, in our judgment, some pretty serious and threatening flaws. And um, it's important to be able to disentangle the two in order to uh, react and cope well with it. Needless to say, dad is the expert here. So he is going to be the uh, the main dude here walking us through the whole thing. And I will be um, reacting intelligently as best I can. Are you ready for this, dad? Yeah, I'm ready for a challenge. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> I think this is what I think getting it all within an hour is going to be the main challenge. We'll see how we do. Yeah, I, I would begin by pointing to a journalist who is a classical liberal, uh, Chris Hedge, um, who um, is of the opinion that cancel culture is really the death of liberalism. Uh, he's very caustic in his criticisms of the identity politics that is kind of the public face of critical social theory. And he calls it boutique radicalism, armchair radicalism, which assuages the consciences of the affluent by requiring the working classes to make sacrifices in the name of abstract ideals of justice. And uh, be that as it may, I think what we'll see in the discussion I'm we're about to have is a red thread running through it, which I, I will call the abandonment of the working classes uh, in critical social theory. So we have to go all the way back to the early Marx, who in his philosophical writings on Hegel and theses on Feuerbach made the point that the purpose of theory is not to understand the world, but to change it. The purpose of theory is not to understand the world, but to change it. Now, this um, was a motto that Marx himself left behind. And he actually did aspire to a, a science-like understanding of the movement of human history with the theory of dialectical materialism. And dialectical materialism was a view that um, 
the basic uh, relationship is between the human species and the natural world. The natural world was indifferent to human happiness. Human beings, of course, are trying to uh, master nature for the purposes of their own happiness. But that requires economy, the division of labor, the uh, creation of economic classes, class conflict. And the mature scientific Marx believed that with his dialectical materialism uh, of communism, he had the key to the riddle of history and knew it. So he was very much thinking that he had understood the world and that, in fact, the aspiration to change the world was something he had kind of left behind in his early humanistic phase. Uh, it's really irrelevant whether we want to change the world. The, the progress through capitalism into a crisis, a revolutionary crisis, and then the development of socialism and communism are going to come about necessarily according to the scientific laws uh, of the theory of dialectical materialism. Can I say something here? Sure can. The, the hubris of both the young, I'm going to change the world even whether I understand it or not, and the hubris of the later, I have cracked the riddle of history and it will unfold according to my prophecy, on both sides is so utterly breathtaking and so anti-intellectual, I hardly know what to say, except simply to observe the extraordinary <laughs> hubris of it all. Well, yeah, but we're going to see that this extraordinary hubris can be spread around all the different factions in the modern West, which are united by the vision of the so what I call the sovereign self, the vision uh, of the human self liberated from all constraints, uh, even in, up to and including the constraints of their own biology, their own embodiments. And this is not unique to Marx. This is across the boards in modernity. And that they also share a kind of a hubristic belief that in epistemology, that there can be a knowledge of knowledge that founds all the sciences in an indubitable intuition or an indubitable insight. Uh, and this is kind of at the root of the, the sovereign self of a modernity. So Marx is just a perfectly modern thinker, whether in his early humanistic phase or in his later dialectical materialism. Well, to pick up the story from there, if dialectical materialism is then making a falsifiable empirical prediction that Europe is on the verge of a crisis that the proletariat will be reduced uh, to a pauperization and wealth will be concentrated in the hands of the capitalists. And at this point, the proletariat will have nothing to lose but its change, chains, and it will therefore awake in revolutionary ardor and overthrow the capitalist regime, expropriate the expropriators, socialize the means of production, and usher in the workers' paradise. That's what Marx predicted, and it didn't happen. It did not happen. So what, what does that do to a scientific theory when it's falsified by history? And uh, here's where 
the first kind of adaption, significant adaption of Marxist theory took place under the name of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin saved Marxist theory with two innovations. Number one, he asserted the need for what he called democratic centralism, the leadership of the proletariat by the intelligentsia of the Communist Party. Why? Because the workers are not instructed in Das Kapital. They haven't read Marxist theory. They don't understand the laws of historical development. And as a result of their ignorance, they're too easily bought off by bread and circuses, by beer and sandwiches. They go on strike, they get a shorter work week, a little vacation time, a little better pay, and all their revolutionary ardor goes out the window, and they settle. And that's how capitalism has figured this out and keeps the machine going by giving these token concessions to gradual improvement in the condition of workers. And that's why is that? Because the workers lack the leadership of the theoreticians that Lenin calls the leadership of the Communist Party. Or maybe people just really like sandwiches and beer. Especially European workers, I would think, right? Uh, maybe vodka and sausages. Anyway, go on. Okay. The second innovation that Lenin introduces is his theory of imperialism. And this really catches the uh, um, colonial epoch of uh, modern Europe and how capitalism internationalized itself through colonialism. And this now creates the condition of the two-thirds world as raw markets uh, for material material goods that can be uh, then uh, 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 extracted uh, from the colonies, returned to Europe for manufacture, and turned into uh, scientific, technological, and uh, economic advances. And so this is the second way that the revolution is postponed and capitalism has figured out how to continue its uh, doomed destiny uh, and delay the day of reckoning through imperialism, colonialism. So basically it's saying that capitalism is cheating through colonialism, the revolutionaries of their revolution. Exactly. Right. That's why Leninism became so popular in the two-thirds world, because the th Lenin's theory of colonialism explained an awful lot uh, to the colonized people of the two-thirds world. But again, things didn't quite turn out that way. Lenin force-marched feudal Russia, skipping an entire historical epoch. In Marx's theory, you had to have the capitalist epoch to create the wealth to fund the science and technology that would finally master nature. And that was necessary. You can't have socialism without the scientific conquest of nature. 
and the technological apparatus deployed in such a way that human beings can really enter a kind of a paradise with all their physical needs secured. It's so striking that socialism, which is often depicted as being like very humane and compassionate, actually, like you said, is premised upon the conquest of nature in order to give people everything that they want. And it was, in fact, also, as you pointed out, none of the countries that adopted serious communism were actually advanced scientifically or materially. They were all rural societies with an uneducated populace. So, you know, China, North Korea, Venezuela, Ethiopia, Cuba, they were the ones that had the the most um, successful in the terms of totalizing and also the most violent of communist regimes take over. Well, absolutely right. And again, the I, I, motif of the conquest of nature, again, is not unique to Marxism or Marxism-Leninism. It's also shared by other versions of modernity uh, wherever the, uh, the belief in science and technology are going to save us because what we need to be saved from is the indifference of nature. Wherever that narrative prevails, you've got this. And it took a particularly acute form in Lenin, Marxism-Leninism, because the opportunity for revolution in, in corrupt feudal societies, as were China and Russia uh, before Mao and Lenin, then leads to this costly, extraordinary costly uh, forced march through industrialization to uh, into uh, an industrial society. A new development now occurs in Western Europe. Number one, disillusionment with Lenin's project in Russia on account of the crimes of Stalinism, the starvation of the Ukrainian kulaks, the peasants, the show trials, the purges, the gulag archipelago, all of this bloodbath disillusions a number of Western Marxist intellectuals that this path uh, is somehow uh, off track, deeply off track. Number two, um, the rediscovery of these manuscripts of the early so-called humanistic Marx. Marx himself had never published these things, but they were discovered and publicized kind of simultaneously with disillusionment in the 20s and 30s with Stalinism. And the possibility of an earlier emancipatory humanistic Marx, whose uh, theory was to change the world, not merely understand it, then introduced an element of subjectivity, of value judgment, of personal commitment into Marxism that had been washed out by the scientific, supposedly scientific interpretation of Marxism that prevailed in Leninism. So that was another factor. But the biggest factor of all was how the working classes in Germany turned to Hitler rather than support the Reds. This was the huge disillusionment that occurred to the Frankfurt School, uh, which is uh, Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer, chiefly the chief thinkers here. 
And they said the whole idea of the proletariat being the vanguard of the revolution is falsified in the fact that they're lining up in uniforms chanting Sig Heil. So it's actually that there's another falsified thesis there that the working classes would naturally tend in a socialist direction for their own interests. Oh, no, it turns out the working class are actually interested in blood and soil and nation and dying gloriously and the master race and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And so the estrangement within Western Marxism from the working classes has its genesis here. Falsification of Marxism, disillusionment with Leninism, exasperation at the support for Hitler among the German working class. It's interesting here for theologians to pay attention to Paul Tillich's role in the Frankfurt School in the 1920s and early 30s because he aligned, both Horkheimer and Adorno were German Jews, and Tillich thought he saw in them the prophetic spirit of of Judaism, biblical Judaism, uh, alive and well in in these guys. And he tried to ally with them. Not Again, he was not a Marxist-Leninist. He was a religious socialist which means uh, in Marxist eyes, Tillich was something of a utopian socialist. But all these labels really aren't that relevant, and I don't want to dwell on them. The important point is that Tillich saw the blind spot in even his friends Horkheimer and Adorno, that uh, they did not appreciate the myth of blood and soil and the power that it had religiously. Uh, for the uprooted, disenfranchised industrial masses who were longing for a sense of being, for rootedness in being, that the mythology of the Nazis was supplying to them. Uh, Lutheran theologian Gary Simpson has written a pretty good book about this, which actually has the title Critical Social Theory, but it, it only takes the story up through the Frankfurt School and the near-contemporary Jürgen Habermas. Uh, So I'll leave that aside, but to mention that it's a very good book about this. Tillich uh, wrote his socialist decision just as he was fleeing Nazi Germany, and it was actually never published in Germany because of the Hitler's rise to power. But in it, you see this dramatic warning to his friends that they, because of their alienation from religion, they were not detecting the religious theme in National Socialism. With this set of developments, a younger member of the Frankfurt School, his name was Herbert Marcuse, and like Tillich, he was a refugee to the United States from Nazi Germany. But Marcuse tried to solve the problem not with religion, the way that Tillich did, but with Freudianism. And his book, Eros and Civilization, in uh, the English language, I think it's a translation from German, uh, was a very interesting book for me that I read while I was still in seminary. And here he's arguing that the, the blind spot in Marxism, the humanistic blind spot, uh, is uh, what Freud discovered or interpreted as sexual repression. So Marcuse is now imagining a liberated society in which all kinds of repressions and and regulations of sexuality are gradually or even revolutionarily overthrown 
and so that he calls it polymorphous perverse, so that you can get off in any direction with anything or anyone at any time at your pleasing. Wouldn't that be heaven on earth? That's Marcuse's attempt to redirect uh, the Marxist tradition away from uh, its alliance with the working class and to see the problems of oppression as rooted in sexual repression. Do we have any reason to think that there is an autobiographical motivation? (laughs) No, I'm not going to go there, Sarah. I have no idea. All right, okay. (laughs) It just is such... um, such an extraordinarily radical departure from supporting the working classes. It kind of seems like, um, you know, what do they say? A fanatic is someone who redoubles his efforts once he's lost sight of his goal. It uh-huh. seems like, you know, you're, you're, uh, the Perusia hasn't happened and your Messiah hasn't returned. And so you have to um, invent a new, a new explanation and like, all right, well, class doesn't work. Let, let's try sex. Ooh, that sounds fun. I mean, I, I know I'm being a, facetious here, but it's I, it's it's hard to kind of see the thread of continuity at that point. Well, I think, Sarah, the thread of continuity is that modern people are miserable, and they're miserable for reasons that they don't understand. They're the most affluent and successful civilization in human history, the modern West, and yet they're wrecked with guilt, they're wrecked with purposelessness, meaninglessness, and uh, can't figure out why they're not happy. And then, of course, other people who are, have accepted uh, their fate, get angry at the others for not being happy. And so they get then pissed off at each other. And we have the political polarization that's typical of our culture. So, you know, deep, it's a deep, why, why are we so miserable? When we ought to be so happy. When we ought to be so happy. Well, back to the drawing boards, maybe there's something wrong with the modern dream of the sovereignty of the self. All right. Yeah, that seems pretty plausible, actually. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think it's important to understand that this first denouement of critical social theory from the Frankfurt School is pretty much in the mode of despair. The book by, uh, the post-war book by Horkheimer and Adorno dialectic of enlightenment is also pointing to the fact what uh, Freud called the the tragedy of civilization, the tragic conflict between the id and the superego, the tragic conflict between infinite human desire and the necessary constraints of nature and society. So it's it ends in a kind of a tragic a kind of a tragic sense of despair. The dream of emancipation and freedom um, simply mocks our impotence. And that leaves for intellectuals uh, to sit on the sidelines in a state of ironic detachment, uh, uh, commenting cynically about people who still take the modern world seriously. And this is the mood of of critical theory uh, in the post-war years up to and including someone as significant as Jacques Derrida, I would say. Derrida is a a kind of a pioneer in the latest iterations of critical social theory because uh, he um, is arguing basically that language is uh, 
pervasive all the way down. It goes all the way up and all the way down. We're all trapped in language. Language can never adequately represent reality. It's always uh, obscuring uh, certain things. It's always uh, enforcing blind spots. It's always playing tricks on us. We're all caught up in it. Language constructs our social reality in a kind of vast and impersonal way from which there is no escape, except that for a philosopher like Derrida, you can, through deconstructive literary techniques, point out all the uh, fallibilities, all the uh, uh, all the omissions, all the blind spots that occur in any discourse, and in that way deconstruct them. What you're left with, of course, is nothing but ruins. But you can show that the things we take for granted uh, in our language, the way our language uh, uh, reinforces it, uh, have been constructed. They can be deconstructed. Now what? Derrida basically says, well, I don't know. So it's more rage against the happy and functional and trying to prove to them that they're living in ruins and they ought to face up to it, even though there's nothing to do about it. Well, I don't know if the functional are all that happy, Sarah, but nevertheless... <laughs> well, compared to the non-functional, perhaps a little better. Well, the, the non-functional are happy in their own ironic detachment, aren't they? That's a, there's a, certainly a very gratifying sense of superiority to be found there, right? All you fools are living in, the, in Plato's cave, uh, taking the shadows as something real, but at least I see that... There's light causing the shadows. So there's no common vision anymore of what counts for human flourishing. I mean, that seems to be another aspect of the red thread. Not only are people unhappy, but there's no agreement on what actually would make them happy. Or I mean, like in a, in a deep sense, not in a shallow sense. Like what, what would human flourishing even be? Nobody knows anymore. I think that's right. And I think Wendy Brown, who's a significant new left uh, philosopher, in an essay that, or a book that I think is uh, pretty important called Undoing the D Demos, Greek word for the people, D-M-O-S, Demos, Undoing the Demos, argues that uh, we're, we're in a, we're, we are in this present state of despair. We see what's wrong with the world, but we have no idea how to fix it. We're all just stuck in this uh, tragic sense of conflict that we can't get out of and, and can't see a positive way forward. But going back to our story, though, along comes Michel Foucault, the great French philosopher, and he really was a great thinker, a very powerful, a, a keen observer of uh, things and a, a researcher who did brilliant work. Uh, but uh, the significance for our story is that Foucault decentralizes, decenters power. Uh, this is a really important move because all the previous champions of the modern myth of the sovereignty of the self assumed that the oppressed were oppressed because the oppressors were on top of them and holding them down. And that power was very much a one-way street that ran from the top down. Uh, Mao Zedong famously said, all power grows out of the barrel of the gun. This is the classic view of top-down power. So if you want power, you've got to uh, 
wrest- get into a wrestling match to be king of the hill. And this view of power, Foucault radically called into question. Uh, in some sense, it's uh, an iteration of Nietzsche's view that we are all will to power, that even the oppressed are animated, driven by the will to power. And, of course, because they are physically weaker, they have to deploy power in cunning ways to snare the consciences of the physically more powerful. Nevertheless, it's power. It's the will to power that animates everything. And as a theologian, Sarah, I think what we want to say here is that Foucault is rediscovering in secular terms the doctrine of original sin. Power is pervasive. Everybody's got it. And power is always egotistically driven uh, for my advantage at the expense of yours in a bellum omnis contra omna. Now, of course, that maybe that's a little bit too intentional for Foucault. He wouldn't want to think that any of us are doing this consciously. But he shows through his many studies how power saturates the system and how it configures itself and configures us so that the game plays us, we don't play the game. That's behind ideas like contemporary ideas like systemic racism. It matters not a whit, Sarah, that in your conscience and in your soul, you are anti-racist and you don't believe in racism as an ideology and that you are welcoming of people of all races. That personal self-understanding is totally irrelevant because in terms of social power, you are organized in a system of power which systematically elevates people white-skinned people as supreme and darker-skinned people as inferior. That's systemic racism. It has nothing to do with your personal intentions. It just captures you, captivates you. The game of racism plays you. You don't play the game. That's the kind of insight into um, power that Foucault exercises in his various studies of racism and sexuality. Yeah, so let me just comment here, just, you know, to, um, to forecast a little bit where this goes. Um, you know, it may well be true. There, there's quite a lot about that that makes perfect sense to me. I would say uh, for, for me, it's been more like always being puzzled at um, a kind of depiction of sexism in which men are powerful and women are weak. That has not necessarily been my <laughs> experience at all, that there's all kinds of power um, and physical strength is or uh, even... Um, dominant social position strength is not the only kind of strength or or power that there is. Um, But I can already see very clearly how if you you take something like this and then decide that you want to use it for action. So it's not just, you know, to echo the early marks, like you said, not just to understand the world, but then to change it, then um, two things are going to happen, it seems to me. One is that the whole foundation of a traditional Western justice system is going to go up in flames almost immediately because it's built on the distinction between individual accountability and intention and everything else that's happening in the world. I mean, you, you try a specific crime, not a whole state or way of being. And then it seems to me that the second thing that's going to happen is that suddenly 
everyone will be scrambling for power in a whole new way. And the critique of power is going to very rapidly morph into a, a bid for power. And that is always going to end up bidding for state power, which still has the monopoly on violence. Is that Does that seem a fair prospect to you? I, I think these are all really pregnant signals of danger uh, in the developments. And of course, we're getting beyond uh, Foucault. Uh, Foucault still um, ends his philosophy in an objective state of despair. All he's done is unveil these power dynamics that suffuse the system and captivate everyone in various ways. It's a, it's a few steps yet to go before we get to the diagnosis that you're making. But I think I can respond to what you just said now, pointing forward with this. There is a analogy, at least, between Foucault's view of power and the Christian doctrine of original sin. Likewise, there is an analogy between the uh, Christian proclamation of the freedom for which Christ has set us free and the post-Foucault development of critical theory as a, an emancipatory uh, inquiry, uh, an inquiry that's motivated by an ethical purpose of emancipation of freedom. So there's, there's analogies here in both, both ways. And just as Paul upbraids the Galatians, uh, why do you want to fall back again into bondage to inferior beings? The, the deepest question in critical theory is why do we desire our own subjugation? Uh, which again is analogous to Paul's challenge to the Galatians. Why do you want to fall back again into slavery? And the critical theorists will ask of, of certain members of oppressed groups, why do you desire your own subjugation? Why do you go along with the system that humiliates you? Uh, objectively. So there's all these analogies here between Christian theology and critical social theory. Because all ideologies in the West are are heresies in the, in the I, I, I don't mean yeah. that like facetiously, but but in the very literal sense that they are taking one aspect of the very deep deposit of Christianity in Western civilization and cutting it off from everything else and then absolutizing it. So so Foucault, who, of course, is a French Catholic who has been I mean, I've lived in France. People are not explicitly religious, but they're saturated in it all the same. And I mean, there's no way he, he was not actually absorbing and processing and then re-emitting this aspect of the Christian story, you know, maybe crucially omitting something like the goodness of creation or an actual redeemer to get you out of your your non-liberated liberated state. Yeah, really. And, and towards the end of this podcast, I'll point to a couple of uh, resources that I think really help show both the analogy and the danger of uh, the analogy between critical social theory and Christian theology and the danger of heresy, the, the, the heresy that's involved here. Uh, but I, now I want to talk a little bit about uh, how we get from Foucault, who died in what, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, to the present day of identity politics and, and 
the kind of critical social theory that, as you said at the beginning, has erupted into the public all of a sudden in, in things like queer studies, fat studies, gender studies, uh, critical race theory, all of this academic stuff has now just uh, burst out of the academy and is now uh, becoming common in our culture. How did that happen? And here I think we have to go back before Marx to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. And we're going to see later on another connection with Kant that's pretty worrisome. But Kant left philosophy with a gap between the subject and the object of knowledge, the human knower and the unknown thing which is grasped phenomenally in scientific knowledge but never captured in scientific knowledge. And this aspect of reality which eluded the grasp of the knower, the active human knower, Kant called the ding on sich, the thing in and of it for itself, as opposed to the ding für, für uns, the, the thing in relationship to us. Uh, and this gap between the subject and the object was felt to be, after Kant, a big, big problem. Why? Because prior to Kant, God was regarded as the creator both of the human mind which knows and of the natural world which it knows. So God was the bridge between the subject and the object that guaranteed their correlation in human inquiry. Even as late as Descartes, you have the ontological proof for God's existence so that God can provide the bridge between the knower and the known. But Kant abolishes that bridge and says it's nothing but a useful idea. We can't take it literally or seriously. And so Kant's philosophy ends with this gap between the knower and the known. And that's how philosophy, secular philosophy from the time of Kant evolves. You can come down on the side of the knower or you can come down on the side of the known. If you come down on the side of the knower, as the continental tradition does, you are philosophically an idealist. If you come down on the side of the known, as happens in empiricist Britain with Locke and Humes and Berkeley and so forth, you come down naturalistically on the side of the object known. Then you are a critical realist saying that science is ever, uh, every day getting closer and closest to knowing the really real of nature. That's empiricism uh, that comes on down on the side of the object. But on the continent, where idealism prevailed with Hegel, you have instead the idea that language is pervasive all the way up and all the way down, and that language is this massive um, matrix in which all of us live and move and have our being. And as a result, there's never knowledge of natural objects. Even the idea that there are natural objects is a creation of language. 
everything is language. Everything is socially constructed through language. So even if a piano falls out of a window on your head, it's a function of language? Yep. Wow. Words kill. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I know. It can so sound preposterous. Mocking like an Anglo-American here, right? <laughs> you exactly are, yes. You're talking like an Anglo-American. Uh, and, it, of course, it is rather preposterous to, to think that these ways. But Kant actually speaks like this in the third critique. I love to parody this, that, uh, you know, Kant looks at the sublime, um, the sublime manifestations of nature in tornado, volcano, uh, eruption, and things like that, and says, unlike those things, I know what is happening. They don't know what they're doing, but I know, you know, so as the avalanche collapses on me, I can shake my fist at it defiantly and say, I know, unlike you, about to crush me to my death. I know what is happening to me. And that proves for idealism the superiority of mind over matter. So again, it's a consolation for the indifference of nature. You could say that, but of course that presupposes that nature is there to <laughs> be nature independently of us and independently of language. And anyway, this is where, this is where critical social theory now uh, uh, takes this turn to language after Foucault. Of course, Foucault pioneered these kinds of studies and how these uh, power dynamics were encoded in language. And of course, Derrida also deconstructed a lot of this. So modern identity politics is a way of talking about how power hierarchies are encoded in language by identifications of social groups, and that therefore the pursuit of political emancipation has to come in a twofold action of the oppressed achieving self-conscious awareness of their membership in oppressed identities, through which comes their renunciation of individual idiosyncrasies and particularities and uh, new solidarity uh, in concerted joint action of the oppressed. That's identity politics. Identity politics is this social constructivism taken to this kind of uh, logical extremity with an emancipatory purpose. Okay, so I get the emancipation connection, but how does it otherwise connect to idealism or all the stuff that we've talked about so far. This seems like a huge leap to go from the de the deconstruction of language to suddenly group identity is more important than either individual identity or common humanity, which seems to be the, the dominant quality of, of identity politics. Well, it's again, it's not strictly idealism in the old-fashioned sense that Hegel would have articulated it, but it descends from this insight that... Um, you can demystify Hegel's idealism. He calls it Geist, which is, as you know, in German, a word that can be mind or spirit. Uh, and Geist, I think my paraphrase of Hegel's Geist is the uh, linguistic mindset of a culture. And this is what, this is the evolution of Geist, the self-manifestation of Geist, 
the coming to consciousness of Geist that Hegel's idealistic philosophy is all about. So it's not a huge step to demystify this and say it's not ideas uh, 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 in some platonic sense. It's just the evolution of language that's occurring materially in the world, that's organizing social hierarchies and, and creating a superior and inferior identities. So is this why why we see coming out of these movements, you know, it's been called political correctness, which seems to be more amped up lately. And unless you use exactly the right term, you are oppressing or insulting or destroying someone. Or even if you, you know, say the term in quotes, just trying to talk about it, you're committing an act of aggression. And, and the, the sort of tendency that was most brilliantly parodied by George Orwell's in 1984 with Newspeak, that you have to continually rewrite language because language is the only way you can achieve your goals. But in the process, you basically destroy people's ability to communicate with each other. Oh, I think, I th yeah, Sarah, I think that's exactly right, that the obsession with politically corrected language uh, is at the heart of all of this because the power is asserted through language. And if I speak in particular ways, I reinforce the superiority, inferiority hierarchy that is, uh, in, prevails in a particular culture. So I must, in my language, defy and rebuke that. Uh, and how do you do that? Well, you certainly don't do that by saying, I'm an individual, I think my own thoughts, and I'm not reducible to any particular social identity. Uh, I got to be me. I want to be free. I don't want to be reduced that way. Well, that's just a betrayal of objective reality. You've got to realize that we're all, we oppressed people are all in this together. We must stick together and we must defy the way the languages force us to think about ourselves, speak about ourselves, and therefore be. Right. Unless, of course, you're in groups of competing oppressed peoples, in which case you have to prove who's more oppressed, right? That's intersectionality. Right. That's um, This intersectionality is very interesting because it develops out of uh, affluent white liberal feminism of the 50s and 60s from the protest of black women feminists who said, you know, your story of glass ceilings and such ain't what is troubling me. Uh, and since since then, you know, a lot of white uh, feminists have tried to listen. And intersectionality is the theory for how uh, this listening is to occur. That is to say that whoever is experiencing the oppression must be given the space and the freedom to speak of their oppression from their own perspective and should not be assimilated or colonized by people higher up the power hierarchy, as uh, womanist theologians of color had complained about the earlier generation of liberal feminism. Right, which really creates this double bind then, because if you are in one of these so-called more affluent or privileged positions, and you actually try to listen and learn from people who are in apparently lesser um, privileged positions, then actually instead of being in solidarity, you're committing the sin of cultural appropriation, and you're stealing 
from them their their unique um, identity or experience. It, it seems to have uh, uh, what used to be a, a way of actually, it seems to me, expanding um, communication and understanding across different groups has actually turned into an atomizing and radically competitive um, holding on to my capital of my oppression in order to compete in the marketplace of oppression. Actually, this is this is where I've come to is that actually these these origin Marxists are actually the most radical capitalists who have ever lived in the most um, competitive marketplace <laughs> scrum I've ever seen. <laughs> That's very funny. Sorry, I know you wanted us to to give it the benefit of the doubt, but I, I, I'm I'm struggling here. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and my exasperation at this goes back to my graduate school days at Union Theological Seminary, where a lot of this stuff was a morning when I was young, forty years ago, and how many endless debates did I listen in on about who is more oppressed than who? And it was, I, I felt at the time, it was all really self-defeating. And also along the same lines that you speak of, that uh, uh, basically if you're anywhere higher up on the so-called power hierarchy, your duty is nothing but to shut up and listen. And this to me is simply chilling. And it doesn't, it really doesn't, help anybody finally. So I think, you know, this intersectional feminism is uh, uh, in some ways a well-intentioned idea, but I, I, I don't see that it's going to succeed in creating the kind of solidarity that people are hoping for. No, it, it seems to actively work against it. In fact, let, let me just extend this um, <laughs> capitalist analysis. Um, I'm curious what you think. One of the things I have, of course, observed as myself, a, a PhD holder and an academic, is how the um, academic space for the humanities has radically shrunk, especially it, d despite the fact that college costs more than ever and the staff and admin of college are utterly bloated and and student debt is incredible. The fact is that it is really a zero-sum patronage game for people within the academic system. And then there's the further fact that in the humanities, unlike in the sciences, there is a more... Um, fixed set of things like uh, what are the chances that you are going to be an English major and really say something about Shakespeare that's never been said before or Jane Austen or the Bible or whatever. And so one way to actually create a competitive advantage in a zero-sum patronage system is to come up with um, new lenses or new fields of study and then persuade morally the your patrons that they have to fund them and support them, and even more so that they can never drop them again, and they have to extend this particular form of research. Um, otherwise, they are, they are evil people. And I mean, I, <laughs> academia is such a, a, um, an economically enclosed and limited environment. And I, I suspect that part of what's going on is that it has created the conditions for this insane competition for limited resources, and that this is one way of shoring up the likelihood of your continuing to draw a salary from your university or even get in there in the first place. Well, yes, I, there's a grain of truth, I think, in what you're saying, but I think it's on the whole much too cynical. And this is what I would say in response. It is true that the story of the United States of America has been told in self-aggrandizing and self-serving ways, which leaves out a lot of human misery and a lot of tales of people 
crushed by the advance of the American empire. That's just a fact. The stories of uh, darker-skinned people in America has not been adequately told and incorporated into the story of our, our, of our country. And in many ways, uh, these uh, new disciplines are attempting to redress those uh, imbalances and correct the record. Likewise, I would say that history as a critical disillusion, uh, as a critical discipline, disillusions. In some ways, that's the whole point of history. History as a humanistic discipline is supposed to pop our bubbles and show us how things really were, uh, so that we can't be vainglorious and, and inordinately proud of ourselves and so forth and so on. All of this would cor correlate with prophetic uh, a theology with respect to the doctrine of original sin. We should not expect our national narratives to be salvation history, uh, and we should be prepared to see in our national histories the, the injustice as well as the justice, the shame as well as the glory. And so I think a lot of this stuff, Sarah, is a corrective, uh, and, and it's a salutary corrective. Does it like all secular ideologies, uh, overreach and in overreaching become endangered of becoming a left-wing fascism, uh, a, a claim to totality? Yes, it does. But this then, I think, really ought to lead us back to, not to capitalism, but to Christian theology. Well, let me just follow up by saying is I, I don't disagree as such with what you're saying. But I think for me, the issue is the idea that we just discovered these inequalities in the past 10 or 15 years seems utterly implausible to me. And second, the fact that it has spilled out into the wider scene and is in fact creating a market for itself all in this time since the last huge financial breakdown and when the, actually the movement of the market is, which has already taken away so many working class jobs, is now coming for middle class and information jobs. I, 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 I'm not saying it in a cynical way. I'm making an observation about uh -huh. that economic incentives really drive people. And I think that there is, is a, a tight correlation between those two. And I, I would further add that I think the other missing piece here is how inadvertent the, the social media and Google al algorithms have directed our attention in ways that nobody could have foreseen. Um, uh -huh. I, I, th those, those are, I, I guess my, my question here is about why has it gotten so acute in such a short period of time recently? And I think those, the, both the economic piece and the algorithmic piece um, have uh, at least as much to do with it as any um, genuine concern about inequality or unrighteousness in our, our nation's project. Yeah, and of course, what you're the formulating there is an is an empirical hypothesis that could be verified or falsified with it, with data, and I'm open minded to that case. If um, we believe in data, that is. Well, if we, yeah, of course, that's the difficulty of taking a scientific approach because if the data's cooked, then the results are going to be cooked. Uh, but what I want to say, Sarah, here is. We can we can circle back here in 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 two ways to the story we've been telling uh, thus far uh, uh, with this. Why has this erupted in the last ten years? And without um, 
confusing correlation with causation, let me say a single name, Donald Trump. And the reason I say the name Donald Trump is that he was clever enough to figure out that white people can play the identity politics game too. And he, <laughs> yeah. he pulled the rug out from under the whole thing, the whole bottomless pit of the hermeneutics of suspicion. And he made it his own principal uh, political pitch that uh, he's going to make America great again by recalling the greatness of white civilization against all those threatening dark-skinned people. That so infuriated and alarmed the academic left uh, that they've gone into this uh, pitch, fervor pitch about the nearness and pervasiveness of white supremacy as an ideology, which actually I find rather implausible as an ideology rather than as a manifestation of original sin. Uh, so, And what did Donald Trump figure out? He figured out that he could pitch um, white identity politics to the disenfranchised working class. That's what gave him his power. And the, the, the deeply troubling thing for me, I mentioned Chris Hedge at the beginning of the podcast, is that this new left, this identity politics left, seems intent on the repudiation of the working class people in the country. And that, to me, is going to do nothing but send the working class people into the arms of right-wing uh, white identitarians. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the second circle I want to make here is that I think theology does a better job of analyzing these dynamics that we're in today than these secular theories that we've spent all this time explaining to our audience. And I want to refer to two books that I find very important, very helpful. The first is by a African-American theologian, J. Cameron Carter, and the book is called Race, a Theological Account. And I'm just, I'm not going to talk too much about it. Maybe in the future we'll say more about it. But right here, I want to say, we've mentioned the importance of Immanuel Kant for setting up this whole development 200 years ago when he gave us culture a choice between naturalism focused upon the object of knowledge and constructivism or idealism focused upon the creator, the human creator of knowledge. And uh, I have been a critical student of Kant all my life, going back to the independent study I took on Kant with Cornell West in my first year of graduate studies. Uh, and I have never in these 40 years known about Kant's uh, 1774 essay on the origin of the human races. J. Cameron Carter lifts this essay out of obscurity and makes it perfectly clear to me how white supremacy was encoded, not in some low base cellar, beer cellar somewhere, but encoded at the very epitome of Western Enlightenment uh, philosophy. Um, and I had known previously, Sarah, 
about the correlation between Kant and enlightened despotism in Prussia. What I had not known is the correlation of uh, enlightened despotism uh, of the high enlightenment in Kant with white supremacy. And uh, J. Cameron Carter articulates this brilliantly and exposes it to knowledge that it was Kant who projected the future domination of the white race through colonialism and imperialism in the name of the advance of the global civilization of science and technology ruled by what he called the tribunal of reason. Wow, so that's so interesting because, I mean, as long as I can remember you talking about Kant, you have always deeply disliked and distrusted his his um, ethical and epistemological accounts of reality is so deeply problematic. So it's fascinating to see that bad epistemology and, and bad metaphysics actually manifest themselves in bad human relationships um, of the most extreme kinds. Wow. Yep. Uh, and, of course, we can get into that deeper in the future. But the second book I want to mention to you, Sarah, that I found very helpful is by a political philosopher named Joshua Mitchell. And I first discovered Joshua Mitchell some years ago when I discovered several really excellent essays, uh, journal articles he published on Luther and the origins of modern politics. Uh, in which he sharply distinguishes Luther's political thinking from the legacy of Hobbes, and also how he's able to connect it, at least indirectly, with the John Locke's alternative to Hobbes' uh, political philosophy. So I had known about Joshua Mitchell, and I actually invited him to Roanoke College. He teaches at Georgetown um, during the uh, several years ago to give a speech which which was quite good, and now I've discovered it was uh, an exploratory of the book he's recently published. And the new book is called American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. And what's so fascinating about this book, again, the analogies between critical social theory and Christian theology, and the title alludes to the Second Great Awakening, in the 19th century in America, which gave birth to abolitionist politics. Uh, that's American history. And Mitchell argues that the current fervor of identity politics is a reprisal of the early American religious awakenings. Only this awakening is without God and above all, without reconciliation or forgiveness. It, it takes over the Christian categories of innocence and transgression, but simply dualizes them. There's the innocent who are transgressed against, and there are the transgressors who are irredeemably guilty. Two parties, black and white, this is what I call in my Joshua commentary a, the, a, a, a politics of purity, whose logical um, fulfillment is finally the purge, the purgation of the offending party. So Mitchell argues this in a quite compelling way, analyzing these uh, dynamics in our, in our fervent uh, culture these days, a book I strongly recommend. Well, let me let me just then uh, to, to tie my own connection here because one thing that 
troubles me. I mean, there are so many things that are troubling about this, but since we're a theology podcast, let me address this now directly to our our church people and uh, Christian and theologian and pastor listeners, which is to say one of the reasons why this, um, this ideology of critical social theory has such power is because it knows exactly how to play the compassionate for suckers. It seems to be about caring for the least and the lost and the disenfranchised. And I mean, Christian people have like no inoculation against that <laughs> if they've been paying attention at all, right? Like this, this is supposed to be our specialty. But I, I to me, it's, a, it's a, a dishonest dodge. It seems to be that, but it's not really that. It is this, this power game. And if you are going to play by their rules and try to make a desperate bid to demonstrate your own righteousness, you'll you'll just fall in a purge at some point along the line, just like, you know, actually, uh, hopefully not like actually happened in Stalinist Russia, but that the internal logic of this, as you said, is not one ultimately of reconciliation, forgiveness, real communication. Um, there, there's no way to win, actually, in the system. It's a race to the bottom. And so I would say what I thought I would Ever have to say, which is, um, dear Christian people, don't be so compassionate. Um, you cannot be compassionate unless you are first truthful. And there's so much dishonesty that's going on here that I think it, it, it not only is going to take advantage of the compassionate, but it's probably going to just destroy c- real compassion in the end if it, if it continues unchecked. Very good. And I quite agree with that. Um, I, what I would say pastorally, along these lines is once again, for freedom Christ has set you free. Submit not again to a yoke of bondage. My conscience and my intellect are not going to be sacrificed to anyone. I will not shut up and listen. I will always uh, uh, claim and exercise my freedom in Christ. Of course, Paul goes on to modify that freedom but in love become slaves to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's Luther's dialectic of the Lord and the servant simultaneously. Uh, I'm not going to be told to shut up and be quiet. Uh, I am going in love to listen. And in love, I'm going to respond and tell the truth as I see it, also in love. And I'm, I claim that freedom and I won't be intimidated or kowtowed uh, by anyone or any ideology. I think that should be said to all Christians in all circumstances, and especially in terms of the danger that you see here. Great. Well, I think it's amazing that we packed all this in basically into an hour. So um, where we're going to go with this next time is um, Dad and I both have also been attending to, I would say, a classical liberal rationalist or enlightenment uh, critiques of critical social theory. And um, both of us are frustrated, shall we say, because it's exactly the big um, missing pieces or holes and flaws in, in this classical tradition that we have inherited, and indeed in many ways value, but it's those holes that critical social theory is driving a truck straight through. So we are going to, in the next episode, turn toward critiquing the critiquers. Yes, the naturalists, uh, in terms of the dichotomy I set up from Kant, we've spent this as this uh, podcast talking about the um, the stream of thought on the continent that that descends through idealism into social constructivism. And next 
week, our next podcast, we're going to be looking at the uh, uh, resistance to that in the name of biology, in the name of science, in the name of empirical research, uh, and so forth. That all can be summed up as naturalism or empiricism, a, a different kind of rationalism than the kind that uh, prevailed on the continent. All right, sounds good. Now I'm going to go culturally appropriate some sushi. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.